you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Good to see you all tonight. My name's Chris. Glad you could join us. It's good to be together. Uh, I guess always my reminder to myself, and I say it out loud, fair enough, fair amount of time anyway, is like we could have been anywhere else doing anything else, and this is the group of people that showed up in this place tonight, and, and I think that's special every time it happens, so I'm glad that we can be together. I'm glad that we can all acknowledge that something in us brought us into this space expectant, I believe, expectant that God would reveal God's self, that show up in our lives, speak a word to us, remind us why Jesus matters, the community of God matters, something along those lines, and hopefully God does that tonight. Uh, you are here on the third Sunday of Advent, and the third Sunday for me is when I get tired of the concept of Advent and waiting. It's like, okay, another, another week where we talk about waiting, right? I get impatient talking about it and thinking about it and doing the actual waiting, and then when I say that out loud, I'm reminded that that's why the season of Advent is formative, though. It teaches us as followers of Jesus to learn to trust the slow work of God, to learn to wait with God, and to believe that we encounter God in the waiting. And yet I think there's this flip that happens, at least for me about this point of the time, is that it's this active kind of waiting. It's not just waiting, it's both waiting and participating in the season of Advent. And I'm going to introduce you to an Advent character who embodies this in-between so perfectly. During the first and second centuries, there was a group of people called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, for those of you who are like, huh, I never heard that word. They retreated into the desert wilderness of Judea to form a, a community of protest, if you will, an alternative to the corrupt dealings of the temple and the politics of Jerusalem. And it was likely within this group of the Essenes from these Jewish mystics who had gone to the edge out into the wilderness that there came a man named John, who even when he was in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, was declared as one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And so at some in-between time, unbeknownst to us, we don't know when John got it in his mind to start proclaiming that truth. Maybe when he even knew it about himself, we don't know that. But he arrives on the scene, and he's rumbling up and down the shores of the Jordan River, crossing back and forth. He's an enigma in the Judean wilderness. He's dressed in this unconventional and uncomfortable outfit of coarse camel hair and a leather belt. He subsists on locusts and wild honey, a man of the wilderness out there, this John character. And then he began to proclaim a message. And it was a message that would shift the balance of the entire world. He began by saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Return to God and be forgiven. And that was his message. And then the days unfolded and, and many more people started to show up and be baptized and to repent, confessing their sins and then being submerged in the Jordan River by this man who would become known as the Baptist, John the Baptist. Some showed up, though, on those shores, the Jordan River, with misguided and ill-conceived desires to participate alongside John in this coming kingdom. 
He called them snakes. And he called them two to change the way they lived. He called them to give up anything that was keeping them from doing God's will. And then these words rang out above all of the crowds that kept gathering on the Jordan River. Someone is coming who is greater than I, John says. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We prepare for the advent, the coming, the arrival of this man. Let's pray before we check it out. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are here with us. We welcome you. We invite you to to teach us, to reveal how much you love us, to, to shape our lives, to fit within the contours of the ways of Jesus. Would you allow us to hear what it is you have to say, maybe audibly, maybe in the depths of our hearts, maybe through an encounter with another person, but we want to hear from you. Give us patience in this in-between season of waiting, but also invite us into participating with you, Jesus, in this in-between space. Lord, would you give me your words to speak, words that are for you, from you, because of you, in line with you. All of this is for you. We love you and we need you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read the passage for today in full. It's in Luke 3, 7 through 18. And then we're going to like make our way back through it and try to figure out what it is John the Baptist is up to. This is the gospel passage for the third Sunday of Advent from Luke 3, 7 through 18. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes who warned you to flee the coming wrath, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many warnings as he announced the good news to the people. The end. You in the Christmas spirit yet? Right? Okay. 
So you can kind of envision the scene, right? Now, a little bit John, John on the Jordan River, these groups of people coming to him. He had already been baptizing and communicating what this was all about. And then a different type of crowd kind of arrives. So I want to read that to you again. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes who warned you to flee the coming wrath, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So, John isn't glad to see them, apparently. Because I think none of us are going to put that on our Christmas card next year, right? Like, good to see you, brood of vipers, who told you to flee the coming wrath, right? Signed the Townleys and their dog, Maya. Like, who, who's, right? Like, what? Really, though, I think there's something about this. that It warrants an observation. Like, who actually is present here then? Who's on the scene? Who arrived in this place? John the Baptist is directing his words at people who are present rather than far away. It's not a message for someone else. He's got news for those within earshot. He, these particular people, he's pointing them, and there's them gathered with him there, to Jesus, who tells them the truth of their intentions. And what's crazy is these people who show up to be baptized by John, they're familiar with the ways of God. This isn't like news to them, right? They know. That's why they're all anticipating that John might be the Messiah. They're like, is this thing over yet? Like, come on, come now. And so there's this juxtaposition happening because they're there in search of something, but apparently their motives are off. So what really seems all surprisingly intense and honestly a bit unsettling the way he talks, I'm, you probably weren't sitting there like, Oh, yeah, this is one of those feel-good messages from John the Baptist, right? No, what's going on here is that he's using language, this image of Jesus as a cosmic judge who will ultimately come, upon, come again into this world to put an end to destruction and wickedness forever. And that idea is frightening to those who have a lot to lose. That idea is liberating to the poor and the press of the time, both of which are gathered in this context. That is why John the Baptist and his community went to the edges because there was corruption in the temple and in the politics of Jerusalem and they were gonna go like, no, we're gonna create an alternative society so that we might do it in such a way that invites the Messiah to come again. That's what they're up to. And there's this tension then in all of these groups along the Jordan River. Fleming Rutledge, she says it like this. She says, in the most extraordinary way, John is truly our contemporary. He stands at the very precipice of the collision of two forces, at the juncture where the world's resistance to God meets the irresistible force of the one who is coming. That is why the ax is laid to the root of the trees. So what do we make of this ax? This imagery is intense. Let's just name that, right? This is intense imagery. Not all literal, but to be taken seriously. 
So here we have John functioning as one, proclaiming this, this coming reversal, if you will, of the downward spiral of human history. And to deliver that message is going to be the invasion of the Son of God, the one they've all been waiting for. And that's why John says, even now, the acts of God's judgment, A-X, right? The acts of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. So what he does when he names this reality is he implores the people to bear fruit that befits their repentance, Right? What, when you repent and you say you follow God, then your life must embody something that says that that's true. John's announcing the beginning and the end all come together in Jesus. And so he knows, John, that is, as do you and I, that people are always trying to escape having to face the living reality of God. Because when we encounter that reality that entails judgment and being pulled out of our comfortable spiritual habits, we start to get uncomfortable. If we believe that we can secure God's blessings through religious rituals, reading the Bible, going to church, adhering to a specific theological confession, we will do those things in place of engaging directly with the Spirit of God. That's what these people who are the brood of snakes have missed. They've got a whole list of things they know how to do as followers of God. And he says, you're missing the point. It's about to break into your presence. So John implores, right, like in prophetic anguish. He is like all the prophets who've gone before him, right? He is shouting something for the people of God to pay attention to so that they might live into their true identity as God's children. He says, pay attention to this, and it's always from the outside in, right? That's where the prophets have to go. And his imploring says, examine yourself. Where are we located along this frontier? From Jerusalem to the Jordan to the wilderness. Where do we stand on the precipice between this age of disease and division and death and God's coming truth and liberation and love? Where are we positioned in that moment? And what would John the Baptist have to say to us as we wait in the in-between? And so we, tangled in the crowd of snake people, right, gathered along the shores of the Jordan River, we ask with them what the crowd asked. What should we do? What should we do? I think it's important when you hear that question because there's got to be a part of every single one of us that goes, yeah, I can relate to that question. I believe they're asking that question in good faith, right? They, they came out in search of something. They're on their own little sojourn out to the edge of the wilderness to find this guy who's proclaiming something there in search of the Messiah. And he starts like ranting about vipers and axes, and coming fire and all these things, they're like, well, what should we do? Tell us what to do, man. That doesn't sound nice. I don't want the ax to sever my roots, right? And I think we ask the same question. What should we do? And I think it's a good faith question when we show up into a place like this and we're like, hey, I know right now this world is not as it should be. But I also know it doesn't have to be this way. So what should we do? 
So John takes the opportunity to answer their question seriously. And he offers this. And what he offers, which we already read, like, I'm going to read it again. It's so practical. It's actually kind of a letdown. Right? Like, you're like, ready for like, what should we do? Like, you're kind of like in this mode, right? Like getting amped up. And then he goes, well, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. And then tax collectors showed up to be baptized. And they're like, well, what should we do? And he's like, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Then some soldiers show up, probably Roman soldiers even, right? Should they do? John replied, well, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with what you have. What? What? Like, I think, I think everyone wants to know what to do. I think few want to do it, though. I think something happens when we hear an answer like that. We're like, oh that like John's prophetic cry is to relinquish anything and everything that is not in line with the good news of Jesus that is on the way he's like if you are tied to anything that's going to keep you from recognizing the Messiah in your midst and this good news that Luke who's writing this is already talking about is going to be revealed to us just a chapter later when Jesus arrives on the scene and Jesus says, this is what that good news is gonna be like. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. You see, he gave them something so tangible to begin setting this right. Join in this good news bringing that's on its way. So what must we do then if we find ourselves among a brood of snakes seeking John's forgiving baptism? What do we do? We align ourselves with the liberating love of Jesus that lives and walks in solidarity with any who are oppressed on the margins, any who are in need, and then we repent each time we don't. That's the cycle we're invited into. That's what John's setting forth here. Right, it's a lifetime commitment to that. And so John's message is also one for today, like actually like right now, right? Like for us communally to repent of the times in which we have not joined Jesus in the bringing of that good news so that we can be forgiven by God and bear fruit that is representative of our repentance. That's the invitation. That's how we actively wait. So what is it then that John the Baptist is doing at this moment in time with these real people present? Make it a little bit more into the moment. He's telling them the truth so that they might tell themselves the truth. For that's the first step in repentance, to tell yourself the truth. The truth of what you've been doing and what you've been a part of and how you got there. How you ended up with two shirts or extra money or some extra food in their sense. Like, well, dang. 
But let's get even more localized. Professor and author Marlena Graves, a Puerto Rican woman who calls herself a missionary to the American church, unpacks this truth-telling and repentance in her own reflection on this very passage that we've been reading. This is what she writes, though. It's a little long, but I figured she's saying it better. I live in the United States of America, a modern-day empire that has gained riches at the expense of others. Here is an abbreviated litany of our greedy and deadly forays. We had a penchant for squatting on and stealing Native American land and then exterminating Native American peoples because they became a problem to get rid of when they refused to cede their land and assimilate. The North and the South alike can trace much of their wealth to chattel slavery and the commercial industries surrounding it. Warring with Mexico paved the way for us to continue our westward expansion. Here we are. Even after the Civil War, our country did not learn its lessons. The United States abolished slavery and gave African-American men voting rights. But by 1877, we'd had our fill of reconstruction and began to renege on its promises. Some historians say that African-Americans only really gained their freedom, the freedom they were granted in 1865 with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yet even now, we are rolling back voting rights. If we turn our gaze to how our nation treated other non-whites, we see our sordid history of exploiting workers and then deporting or imprisoning them. Think of the Chinese we recruited to come build the railroads and then summarily barred them from entering our country from 1882 to 1943. In 1917, we passed an immigration law that barred people in much of Asia from entering the United States. We decided we did not want Southern and Eastern Europeans coming in either, so a literary test was added to the new law. And she concludes, rehearsing this litany of American transgressions, even while leaving myriads of them off the list, is utterly exhausting. But it is the first step in repentance because we are telling the truth to ourselves. We have to name where we've been and what we've done to get to the point of being free, to join Jesus in the bringing of his liberating love. And so we return then to what John the Baptist is announcing in the desert. This in-between guy, right? The guy who names this like, where are we whole thing. He says to these people who gather around, produce fruit that keeps with the repentance you claim. If you claim to repent and return to God, then let your life bear that fruit out. And let me say this about repentance. Repentance is not a dirty and shame-fueled word like many who have grown up in at least evangelicalism have been led to believe. Repentance is a gift, and it's distinctly Christian, and it has been from the moment that John announced Jesus walking on the earth. It's the gift to come home to be set free from the things that you keep participating in that keep you from actually walking in step with the love of Jesus. Repentance is a gift. It's more than saying, I'm sorry, but that starting point then sets you on the trajectory in which your life bears fruit that keeps with that repentance. This is the Holy Spirit-filled life that John's about to allude to, in which the Spirit of Jesus 
refuses to continue down destructive, death-filled, and toxic paths, right? To go in this way with Jesus means choosing life in all of its vulnerability, all of its fragility, all of its glory, which is life to the full. And repentance then in all of its forms back brings life and healing and the shalom that was intended at the beginning when God created all things. But this type of repentance requires so much humility. And that's hard work. Here's how John the Baptist models this humility, even as a prophet proclaiming in the wilderness. He says, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. They were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah, which I just want you to think about what that meant to be John. Right, you, you've gone to the edge of the inside and you're saying, this thing is not as it should be. You all need to repent because it's taking people down with you and Jesus is gonna come and change that. And they're like, well, are you the guy? Because if you're the guy, then the coat you told me to get rid of or the food you told me to share is not gonna really matter because you're already here. And so John answers their question by saying, I baptize you with water. A good and meaningful thing that was an actual representation of their repentance and returning to God. He says, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork, which is imagery that we don't know much about, but it's extreme. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. He used these warnings so that they could not ignore what he was inviting them to. The characteristic liturgical petition of Advent is this word Maranatha. And Maranatha means come Lord Jesus. That's what John is teaching us to say. Come Lord Jesus, I repent. Come Lord Jesus, set us free. Come Lord Jesus, heal us with those we've hurt. It's not a prayer for Jesus to come again as a helpless baby. That's how God reveals himself and it's quite subversive. But this is the cry of God to come and return in power and glory so that then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the kind of liberating love we need. And so Fleming Rutledge says one more time about Advent. She's like an Advent expert. She says, the Advent season encourages us to resist denial and face our situation as it really is. Will we? Will we do that? And the proclamation of John the Baptist is just him announcing what his most famous saying about Jesus really represented. He's most known for saying, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. That is exactly what John embodies all along the way for us. And that's why he's a guide in the middle of Advent to say with him when we're trying to figure out how we face the situation we're really in. We go, okay, well then how does Jesus become greater and greater and how do I become less and less? And that's why the only way 
is humble repentance. That's the way of Jesus. Is Jesus enough? Or will we cling to our coats? Will we cling to our cash? Will we cling to our cuisine? Three C words. Or will we receive the gift of repentance? That's what he's asking the crowd that comes before him on the Jordan River. And the third Sunday of Advent is then an invitation from the fiery mouth of John the Baptist to examine our lives and determine if we'll walk with the Messiah who has come to restore all things, to be with us, and to proclaim good news. Jesus is going to arrive and show us that he is who God has always been and always will be. And that's actually surprising as well because that's the God who is with us. God doesn't want to be God without us. But to be with that God is to follow him down. And so we actively wait and we participate with Jesus all at the same time. And the question, I guess, is will we return to our God? So we stand on the shores of the Jordan River, tell the truth about where we've been in the city of Jerusalem, and then bear the fruit out of our repentance that follows. Will we? It's a real invitation for us as individuals and for us as a community. And it's not a question that anyone can answer for another. But I do think there's something about a communal group of people who wrestle with the question. You might not just hit it right today like, yeah, repent, boom, I'm in, all that stuff, sell everything. You're like, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's even what we got to do. <laughs> but, but it might be more gradual. It might be the ongoing process. And that's where we need one another as we ask the question of what is the harm I'm actually doing to others and to the world? And how do I repent and move away from that? and actively engage in doing the good work that Jesus says he came to do and wants to do with us. That's why we need one another. Yes, I pray that the Spirit of God would have a hold of all of our lives and that we would follow this Jesus into humble repentance and go where he asks us to go and be who he asks us to be. Yes, but like everyone else in here, not all the days are good days. So we need others to keep walking on the path with us. We need people who challenge us to tell the truth about where we've been and what we've done so that we can say, that's not what I want to be a part of. I got to go this way. And that's the question I pose to you because it's the third Sunday of Advent and Jesus hasn't arrived as the story goes just yet. So as the band comes up, what I want to do is I just want to give you space to hear from God. I don't even know what that would mean or look like or feel like or do for you. But I want God to have the last word in all that. Maybe you need to imagine yourself on the shores of the Jordan River. Maybe you just need to imagine yourself walking back the other way with Jesus. I don't know. But I just want you to have some space to figure out what it means for you to return to God, to tell the truth about where you've been and begin bearing the fruit of your repentance. Let's take some moments with him.
Son, and Holy Spirit. Keep speaking. Keep guiding. Keep loving. Keep convicting. Guide us in the way of repentance. And let us remember it as a gift, God that ushers us back into communion with you, but also with community. Jesus, I pray that you would be enough for us and that we would heed John the Baptist's call to relinquish anything that might keep us from going with you. We need you. We love you. resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.